This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 45 Southern Sports. In the North, one hears the war mentioned in social conversation once a month, sometimes as often as once a week. But as a distinct subject for talk, it has long ago been relieved of duty. There are sufficient reasons for this. Given a dinner company of six gentlemen today, it can easily happen that four of them, and possibly five, were not in the field at all. So the chances are four to two, or five to one, that the war will at no time during the evening become the topic of conversation, and the chances are still greater that if it become the topic, it will remain so but a little while. If you add six ladies to the company, you have added six people who saw so little of the dread realities of the war that they ran out of talk concerning them years ago, and now would soon weary of the war topic if you brought it up. The case is very different in the South. There every man you meet was in the war, and every lady you meet saw the war. The war is the great chief topic of conversation. The interest in it is vivid and constant. The interest in other topics is fleeting. Mention of the war will wake up a dull company and set their tongues going, when nearly any other topic would fail. In the South, the war is what A.D. is elsewhere. They date from it. All day long you hear things placed as having happened since the war, or during the war, or before the war, or right after the war, or about two years, or five years, or ten years before the war, or after the war. It shows how intimately every individual was visited in his own person by that tremendous episode. It gives the inexperienced stranger a better idea of what a vast and comprehensive calamity invasion is than he can ever get by reading books at the fireside. At a club one evening, a gentleman turned to me and said in an aside, "'You notice, of course, that we are nearly always talking about the war. It isn't because we haven't anything else to talk about, but because nothing else has so strong an interest for us. And there is another reason. In the war, each of us, in his own person, seems to have sampled all the different varieties of human experience. As a consequence, you can't mention an outside matter of any sort, but it will certainly remind some listener of something that happened during the war, and out he comes with it. Of course, that brings the talk back to the war. You may try all you want to, to keep other subjects before the house, and we may all join in and help, but there can be but one result. The most random topic would load every man up with war reminiscences, and shut him up, too and talk would be likely to stop presently, because you can't talk pale inconsequentialities when you've got a crimson fact or fancy in your head that you are burning to fetch out. The poet was sitting some little distance away, and presently he began to speak about the moon. The gentleman who had been talking to me remarked in an aside, "'There, the moon is far enough from the seat of war, but you will see that it will suggest something to somebody about the war.' In ten minutes from now the moon, as a topic, will be shelved. The poet was saying he had noticed something which was a surprise to him, had had the impression that down here, toward the equator, 
The moonlight was much stronger and brighter than up north, had had the impression that when he visited New Orleans many years ago, the moon— Interruption from the other end of the room. Let me explain that. Reminds me of an anecdote. Everything has changed since the war, for better or for worse. But you'll find people down here born grumblers, who see no change except the change for the worse. There was an old negro woman of this sort. A young New Yorker said in her presence, What a wonderful moon you have down here. She sighed and said, Ah, bless your heart, honey. You ought to seen that moon for the wall. The new topic was dead already, but the poet resurrected it and gave it a new start. A brief dispute followed as to whether the difference between northern and southern moonlight really existed or was only imagined. Moonlight talk drifted easily into talk about artificial methods of dispelling darkness. Then somebody remembered that when Farragut advanced upon Port Hudson on a dark night, and did not wish to assist the aim of the Confederate gunners, he carried no battle-lanterns, but painted the decks of his ship white, and thus created a dim but valuable light, which enabled his own men to grope their way around with considerable facility. At this point the war got the floor again, the ten minutes not quite up yet. I was not sorry, for war talk by men who have been in a war is always interesting, whereas moon talk by a poet who has not been in the moon is likely to be dull. We went to a cockpit in New Orleans on a Saturday afternoon. I had never seen a cockfight before. There were men and boys there of all ages and all colors, and of many languages and nationalities. But I noticed one quite conspicuous and surprising absence—the traditional brutal faces. There were no brutal faces. With no cockfighting going on, you could have played the gathering on a stranger for a prayer-meeting, and after it began for a revival, provided you blindfolded your stranger, for the shouting was something prodigious. A negro and a white man were in the ring, everybody else outside. The cocks were brought in in sacks, and when time was called, they were taken out by the two bottle-holders, stroked, caressed, poked toward each other, and finally liberated. The big black cock plunged instantly at the little gray one, and struck him on the head with his spur. The gray responded with spirit. Then the babble of many-tongued shoutings broke out, and ceased not thenceforth. When the cocks had been fighting some little time, I was expecting them momently to drop dead, for both were blind, red with blood, and so exhausted that they frequently fell down. Yet they would not give up, neither would they die. The negro and the white man would pick them up every few seconds, wipe them off, blow cold water on them in a fine spray, and take their heads in their mouths, and hold them there a moment, to warm back the perishing life, perhaps, I do not know. Then, being set down again, the dying creatures would totter gropingly about, with dragging wings, find each other, strike a guesswork blow or two, and fall exhausted once more. I did not see the end of the battle. I forced myself to endure it as long as I could, but it was too pitiful a sight so I made frank confession to that effect, and we retired. We heard afterward that the black cock died in the ring, and fighting to the last. Evidently there is abundant fascination about this sport, for such as have had a degree of familiarity with it. I never saw people enjoy anything more than this gathering enjoyed this fight. The case was the same with old gray heads, 
and with boys of ten. They lost themselves in frenzies of delight. The cocking mane is an inhuman sort of entertainment, there is no question about that. Still, it seems a much more respectable and far less cruel sport than fox-hunting, for the cocks like it. They experience, as well as confer, enjoyment, which is not the fox's case. We assisted, in the French sense, at a mule-race one day. I believe I enjoyed this contest more than any other mule there. I enjoyed it more than I remember having enjoyed any other animal-race I ever saw. The grandstand was well filled with the beauty and the chivalry of New Orleans. That phrase is not original with me. It is the Southern reporter's. He has used it for two generations. He uses it twenty times a day, or twenty thousand times a day, or a million times a day, according to the exigencies. He is obliged to use it a million times a day, if he have occasion to speak of respectable men and women that often, for he has no other phrase for such service except that single one. He never tires of it. It always has a fine sound to him. There is a kind of swell medieval bulliness and tinsel about it that pleases his gaudy barbaric soul. If he had been in Palestine in the early times, we should have had no references to much people out of him. No, he would have said, The beauty and the chivalry of Galilee assembled to hear the Sermon on the Mount. It is likely that the men and women of the South are sick enough of that phrase by this time, and would like a change, but there is no immediate prospect of their getting it. The New Orleans editor has a strong, compact, direct, unflowery style, wastes no words, and does not gush. Not so with his average correspondent. In the appendix I have quoted a good letter, penned by a trained hand, but the average correspondent hurls a style which differs from that. For instance, the Times Democrat sent a relief steamer up one of the bayous last April. This steamer landed at a village, up there somewhere, and the captain invited some of the ladies of the village to make a short trip with him. They accepted, and came aboard. The steamboat shoved out up the creek. That was all there was to it. And that is all that the editor of the Times Democrat would have got out of it. There was nothing in the thing but statistics, and he would have got nothing else out of it. He would probably have even tabulated them, partly to secure perfect clearness of statement, and partly to save space. But his special correspondent knows other methods of handling statistics. He just throws off all restraint and wallows in them. On Saturday, early in the morning, the beauty of the place graced our cabin, and proud of her fair freight, the gallant little boat glided up the bayou. Twenty-two words to say the ladies came aboard, and the boat shoved out up the creek, is a clean waste of ten good words, and is also destructive of compactness of statement. The trouble with the southern reporter is women. They unsettle him. They throw him off his balance. He is plain and sensible and satisfactory until a woman heaves in sight. Then he goes all to pieces. His mind totters. He becomes flowery and idiotic. From reading the above extract, you would imagine that this student of Sir Walter Scott is an apprentice, and knows next to nothing about handling a pen. On the contrary, he furnishes plenty of proofs, in his long letter, that he knows well enough how to handle it when the women are not around to give him the artificial flower complaint. For instance, 
At four o'clock ominous clouds began to gather in the southeast, and presently from the gulf there came a blow which increased in severity every moment. It was not safe to leave the landing then, and there was a delay. The oaks shook off long tresses of their mossy beards to the tugging of the wind, and the bayou in its ambition put on miniature waves in mocking of much larger bodies of water. A lull permitted a start, and homewards we steamed an inky sky overhead, and a heavy wind blowing. As darkness crept on, there were few on board who did not wish themselves nearer home. There is nothing wrong with that. It is good description, compactly put. Yet there was great temptation there to drop into lurid writing. But let us return to the mule. Since I left him, I have rummaged around and found a full report of the race. In it I find confirmation of the theory which I broached just now, namely, that the trouble with the southern reporter is women. Women supplemented by Walter Scott and his knights and beauty and chivalry and so on. This is an excellent report, as long as the women stay out of it. But when they intrude, we have this frantic result. It will be probably a long time before the ladies' stand presents such a sea of foam-like loveliness as it did yesterday. The New Orleans women are always charming, but never so much so as at this time of the year, when in their dainty spring costumes they bring with them a breath of balmy freshness and an odor of sanctity unspeakable. The stand was so crowded with them that, walking at their feet and seeing no possibility of approach, many a man appreciated, as he never did before, the Perry's feeling at the gates of paradise and wondered what was the priceless boon that would admit him to their sacred presence. Sparkling on their white-robed breasts or shoulders were the colors of their favorite knights, and were it not for the fact that the doughy heroes appeared on unromantic mules, it would have been easy to imagine one of King Arthur's gala days. There were thirteen mules in the first heat. All sorts of mules they were, all sorts of complexions, gaits, dispositions, aspects. Some were handsome creatures, some were not. Some were sleek, some hadn't had their fur brushed lately. Some were innocently gay and frisky. Some were full of malice and all unrighteousness. Guessing from looks, some of them thought the matter on hand was war. Some thought it was a lark. The rest took it for a religious occasion. And each mule acted according to his convictions. The result was an absence of harmony well compensated by a conspicuous presence of variety, variety of a picturesque and entertaining sort. All the riders were young gentlemen in fashionable society. If the reader has been wondering why it is that the ladies of New Orleans attend so humble an orgy as a mule race, the thing is explained now. It is a fashion freak. All connected with it are people of fashion. It is great fun, and cordially liked. The mule race is one of the marked occasions of the year. It has brought some pretty fast mules to the front. One of these had to be ruled out, because he was so fast that he turned the thing into a one-mule contest, and robbed it of one of its best features—variety. But every now and then somebody disguises him with a new name and a new complexion, and rings him in again. The riders dress in full jockey costumes of bright-colored silks, satins, and velvets. The thirteen mules got away in a body, after a couple of false starts, and scampered off with prodigious spirit. 
as each mule and each rider had a distinct opinion of his own as to how the race ought to be run, and which side of the track was best in certain circumstances, and how often the track ought to be crossed, and when a collision ought to be accomplished, and when it ought to be avoided, these twenty-six conflicting opinions created a most fantastic and picturesque confusion, and the resulting spectacle was killingly comical. Mile heat time two minutes twenty-two seconds. Eight of the thirteen mules distanced. I had a bet on a mule which would have won if the procession had been reversed. The second heat was good fun, and so was the consolation race for beaten mules, which followed later. But the first heat was the best in that respect. I think that much the most enjoyable of all races is a steamboat race. But, next to that, I prefer the gay and joyous mule rush. Two red-hot steamboats raging along, neck and neck, straining every nerve, that is to say, every rivet in the boilers, quaking and shaking and groaning from stem to stern, spouting white steam from the pipes, pouring black smoke from the chimneys, raining down sparks, parting the river into long breaks of hissing foam. This is sport that makes a body's very liver curl with enjoyment. A horse-race is pretty tame and colorless in comparison. Still, a horse-race might be well enough, in its way, perhaps, if it were not for the tiresome false starts. But then nobody is ever killed. At least, nobody was ever killed when I was at a horse-race. They have been crippled, it is true. But this is little to the purpose. End of chapter 45